was reading, uh, doing some interesting reading, really. I was reading about the companies that actually grew by 20% or more during the pandemic. Most companies took a significant loss, but certain companies did very well. You know, certain companies like internet streaming companies did very well during the pandemic. Uh, grocery stores uh, did really, really well in the pandemic. If you were hardware stores, like if you were one of those few places that they deemed essential, you know, it was the only place you could go. You did pretty good in your sales uh, in 2020. But an unlikely company that did really, really well, particularly in 2020, was Ancestry.com. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Ancestry.com, it is a company that will track your genealogy and your family tree. And, you know, you, you get on there and you pay a fee and they'll tell you who your great, 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 great granddaddy and great, 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 great grandmama was and aunts and uncles. And, and they'll also, you know, find in, interesting information, records and whatnot that you probably didn't even know existed. And they, they kind of help fill in the historicity of your family tree and background. And I thought it was amazing that with people kind of stuck at home and people, you know, every time you turn on the news, they're telling you 500 ways you're going to die of COVID and all that kind of stuff. People started, they started reaching for their roots. You know, they wanted to know something about where they come from, who they come from. And I thought that was, that was interesting. It's true, isn't it? When you, when you go through challenging days, you, you kind of reach for your roots. You kind of reach for, for where you come from. And, and I thought that today, if you don't mind, I love preaching to you, but I thought today I'd just talk to you about what we are as the church of Jesus Christ, about where we come from, and about what significant days like Pentecost actually means. Let's start with the word Pentecost. When, when people hear the word Pentecost, um, sort of depending on their background, a lot of different images and ideas can be conjured. Um, if you happen to grow up Pentecostal uh, in a Pentecostal denomination, uh, Pentecost can, can almost be defined as an expression or a style of worship, okay? Or an expression or a way the Holy Spirit moves on certain people. Okay. Um, you know, some people equate Pentecostal churches, and I'm not being funny, they really do. They think Pentecostal churches and they define it like that because, you know, there's an organ player playing with the preacher while he's preaching. Some people equate, I didn't just give that away, did I? Some people, some people equate Pentecost with a church that, that people will randomly feel the spirit and shout, you know, real loud, you know, or, 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 or dance or get up on top of a chair and dance or run the aisles or, you know, roll in the floor. Believe it or not, we've had some people feel the spirit and roll in the floor. And, and if you're not very familiar, you know, you, you kind of can just label those type of activities and expressions. You can label that, oh, that's Pentecostal, you know? If you're a little more familiar with the scripture and someone asks you about Pentecost, you may say Acts chapter 2, uh, when the Holy Spirit fell on the 120 that were in the upper room and they all begin to speak in tongues, you know? Or maybe if you're a little more familiar with that, you'd say, well, Pentecost, that's the birth of the early church of Jesus Christ. That was the formation. That was the day that it all happened. And all of those things are well and good and, and true to some extent. But Pentecost is not an experience or a day or a thing that happens in the book of Acts for the first time. In fact, Pentecost doesn't have its roots in Acts at all. Pentecost shows up first in Exodus. First of all, uh, what, what's, what's Pentecost mean as a word anyway? It's, 
It's something you may, you may be shocked by. It just means 50 days. 50 days. That's all it means. Pente, 50 days. Pentecost. So why does it show up in the book of Exodus? Well, you remember the Passover with Moses and the children of Israel. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. God speaks to Moses and says, I'm sending judgment. I'm sending a destroyer, the death angel. He's going to pass through the land. And if you'll tell all of the Hebrews to take the blood of a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on their door and their window, when the destroyer comes through, wherever I see the blood, I'll make him pass over you. Okay. So that was Passover. But then God told Moses to set his watch, to set the clock, to set the time. And count 50 days after the Passover. So see, you can't have Pentecost without first having Passover. Because Pentecost gets its cue, gets its countdown from the Passover. So Pentecost as a word, all it means is 50 days after the Passover. It was an event. All right. So the children of Israel, they apply the blood of the lamb. Their lives are spared, and it was ultimately the Passover that prompted Pharaoh to free them from their bondage. Get these people out of here. You can go. Um, God miraculously parted the Red Sea, and the children of Israel exited their season of bondage because of the Passover. Okay. Then 50 days later, the fire of God came down on Mount Sinai. And God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the formation of the law 50 days after the Passover. So that's the first event of Passover that we have in the scripture. Now, let me tell you why this is significant. Because when the children of Israel exited Egypt during the Passover, they were free, but they were basically strangers, vagabonds, people just wandering around in chaos, no order, no government, no preamble, no constitution. They were free, but that was all they had going for them, just free, nothing else. But 50 days after the Passover, when God comes down on Mount Sinai and he gives Moses the law, God begins to bring order to them and makes them a new nation at Pentecost. He gives them a constitution. He gives them a set of rules to live by that will give them their very best life. He gives them government. He gives them order and he puts his seal on them as his people at Pentecost. Okay. Saved them at Passover, but then puts his seal on them, transforms them into a new people and adopts them as his own at Pentecost. You see the difference saved by the blood of the lamb at Passover then transformed, made a new people, and adopted at Pentecost. I'm going to say it again because I want you to catch it. And I see like three people writing notes, and I love you for that. So I'm going to say it again. Saved by the blood of the Lamb at Passover, and then adopted, having God's seal put on you, made his own at Pentecost. Two separate experiences, but both very, very important. Then, if you keep following the scripture, you'll know right after that, God spoke to Moses and said, okay, I've just established this new nation, this new people. I've turned slaves into sons. I've turned people that were in bondage into the people that have a new start. They're a new creation, and this is a new day. But what I want you to do for them, for as long as they are a nation in the earth, I want you to tell them to look back at the Passover and look back at Pentecost and celebrate it as a holy feast day or a holy appointed time. So the nation of Israel for 1400 years had been looking back and celebrating the Passover. 
they had been looking back and celebrating Pentecost, looking back when they were saved from their bondage of Egypt at Passover, looking back when they were made a new nation and they were adopted as God's own people at Pentecost. And they've been celebrating 1400 years. And then Jesus Christ steps on the scene. And it was during there, the Jewish feast of Passover, that Jesus Christ was arrested, taken to the whipping post, crucified, and died, revealing that he was the ultimate lamb of God. He was the ultimate Passover lamb, that all of the lambs 1400 years prior were just whispering in the Old Testament what God would later shout at us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world and causes judgment and death and hell and sin to have to pass over. Okay. And then 50 days after Jesus died and rose again, we have the day of Pentecost that you read about in the book of Acts. And so... Jesus, as we read in Luke, before he ascended, he, he rose from the dead. He showed himself alive for 40 days, okay, 40 days. Then he ascended into heaven and he told his disciples as he was about to step on that cloud and go up into heaven, he said, look, don't preach, don't minister, don't do anything. I want you to go tarry, go wait in Jerusalem because in a few days, okay, in just a few days, you're going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes on you. And Acts chapter 2, we read it when the day of Pentecost had fully come or when the, the countdown of 50 days had been completed, the Holy Spirit fell, uh, cloven tongues of fire set on each of them. And, and I hope you're seeing the continuity of God's timing between the Old Testament and the New. In Exodus, the Old Testament, he freed them from their bondage at Passover. He put his seal on them and made them a people at Pentecost. He adopted them at Pentecost. Same thing with Jesus in the New Testament. He saved us from the bondage of our sin and hell when he died on the cross at Passover. But then God put his seal on us at Pentecost called us his own, transformed us into a new creation and adopted us as his children. And he did all that at Pentecost. Look at Romans 8, 14 through 17. It says all that real nicely in the scripture. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The translation for sons there is the children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received, watch, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Notice that. When did we receive that spirit of adoption? We received it when we received the Holy Spirit, or we received it during Pentecost. All right. So through the scripture, I want you to catch this. Through the scripture, God is using events to teach us about experiences. Now hold that in your mind. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, what are they? They're events. But God knew we would be reading about it. So God is using the events of the scripture to teach us about experiences. Okay. The Passover was an event but it teaches you about an experience because if you are in this church this morning and you are saved, if you have repented of your sins, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusted him for your salvation and him alone, then you have experienced Passover. The blood of Jesus has been applied to your life by faith and sin, hell and death has to pass over your soul. Now, some people in here got saved during the Passover on the calendar. A lot of people get saved on Easter, but it doesn't matter if you got saved on Easter or on July 3rd, you know, that you experienced the Passover, you know, once you got saved and then Pentecost, that's also an experience. Pentecost is when you are filled with the Holy Spirit 
of God. So there's many people in here, you've experienced Passover. Many people in here, you have experienced Pentecost regardless of the date. But I wanted, before we go any further, I wanted to, to clear up what Pentecost means. And I wanted you to have that knowledge and that understanding because I think it displays to us really neatly how organized our God is. That our God is a God of intricate timing. That, that what he did in the Old Testament, he turns around and does the same thing in the New Testament, and he does it down to the day. It's not 48 days. It's not 52 days. It was 50 days to the day. And what it underscores is God has our times in his hands, and God is a God that monitors timing. God is a God that knows the date you went into the struggle that you're going through right now. And he also knows the date when you are coming out of the struggle that you're going through right now. He holds the time in your hands. He, he holds the days and the dates of your life in, in his hands. And he works all things together after the counsel of his own will. So it happened in the New Testament with Passover and Pentecost because he willed it and established it in the Old Testament. And your life, regardless of what you are facing, if you are a believer, your life is going to turn out according to the purpose of his own will. It doesn't matter what the enemy's doing right now. It doesn't matter what people are saying right now. It doesn't matter what the doctor said to you. It doesn't matter what the lawyer said to you. It doesn't matter what your boss said to you. Your life is going to turn out exactly how God willed and planned it because he's an intricate God. He saved you in an intricate way down to the second, down to the moment the timing was set. If he put that much effort into saving you, how much more effort will he put into keeping you and walking with you and protecting his investment? Did you know if you're a blood-bought child of God that you are the investment of God? You are the adopted of God? You belong to God. And he's an intricate God. I like saying that. He's an intricate God. Look at somebody say, he's an intricate God. <coughs> Detail. Now, 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 the Holy Spirit. Now, I can tell you right now, this is going to be disappointing to some of you. Because people, people grasp all type of cultural expressions about who and what the Holy Spirit is. But just because they're cultural doesn't mean they're doctrinal. All right. For some people, it ain't the Holy Spirit unless, unless there's a whole lot of shana mahanda, shana mahanda, shana mahanda. You know, and you got a Ford, you just don't know what's shana mahanda, you know. Some churches teach that the Holy Spirit is very, 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 very gentle, very, very quiet, and very, very peaceful. Alleluia. Alleluia. And you know, you see people just go nuts when, when you know people start doing that because it's just. They see the Holy Spirit. Other people teach that the Holy Spirit is a force and, 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 and a fire and, and raw power. And, you know, those folks can't, you know, they can't feel the Holy Spirit unless there's a whole lot of shouting and shaking. You know. but, but just because it's... I almost said something and I just want to thank you, Jesus, for being a guard at my mouth. Um, just because it's, it's cultural... Doesn't mean it's doctrinal. And just because you experience something one way does not necessarily mean your children will experience it the same way. And so what we want to back up from is cultural expression of our understanding of the Holy Spirit and find out what does the word say. All right? 
So now there's a lot we could teach. You know, you could, you could literally teach for a whole year about the Holy Spirit from the scripture, but we're going to crack the surface today. We'll get to the rest of it. But perhaps the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood member of the Godhead or the Trinity. If you're coming from a Baptist or a Presbyterian background in the life of a Christian, the Holy Spirit will come to mean so many things. He's a comforter. He's a guide. He's a counselor. He's an intercessor. All of that's right out of the Bible. And he even flows through us by empowering major spiritual gifts, healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, just amazing things. But what is the most? Now, I want you to think about this. Don't shout it out because you might be wrong. <laughs> what is the most important attribute? of the Holy Spirit. See, I think it's sad because a lot of us a lot of us focus and define him by his gifts. How would you feel if someone did that to you? Just define your whole person by your gifts. You know? Just define me by the car I drive or the clothes I wear or the things I can give you. How would you feel if a person defined you? By your gifts. That would kind of cheapen you, wouldn't it? It'd kind of make you feel almost like you're being used. A lot of times people define the Holy Spirit by a tongue talking or by a shout or by a goose pimple or by deep inspiration that they feel on the inside or by prophecy. I got a word of prophecy and I know it was from the Holy Spirit and just all kind of different cultural stuff that really has more to do with his gifts than who he is. So what's the most important attribute about the Holy Spirit? What's the most important attribute of who he is? If you're taking notes, the greatest attribute of the Holy Spirit, and I just feel the anointing and the presence of the Lord so strong, I'm really trying to be careful because I don't want to get loud. I really, the Lord told me to teach this, but I'm so stirred. The most important attribute of the Holy Spirit is that he is a witness. Everybody say he's a witness. Now say it again. He's a witness. The word witness means one who provides proof or evidence. Second definition, one who testifies. Okay. A witness cannot testify based off how he feels. A witness cannot testify based off of his opinion or conjecture. And a witness cannot testify based off what he thinks. A witness can only get up in a court and testify to what he has seen. Okay. Now, go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, I want you to look at a couple of words with me, and let's see if we can put this together. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is about to ascend to go up into heaven. Okay? Before he does, he tells his disciples, go wait a few days. Okay, it's not going to be long. Go wait a few days. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, let's look at that. You shall receive. In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to have something you don't have right now. You Shout. Come on. Talk with me now. You. Okay. But I want you to, in your mind, just underline that shall. Put a, a, a big line on it on, under the screen for your mind. Just you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Watch this. And you be. Now that's bothersome. 
That's bothersome. That's bothersome to a Bible student. Let me tell you why. Because he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the men that have literally lived with him for three and a half years every day. He's talking to the men that were standing there with him when he opened up the blind eyes of Bartimaeus. He's talking to the men that watched him walk on water, get into the boat and speak peace to the storm. He's talking to the men that were standing at the grave of Lazarus and they watched Jesus clear his throat and then clear death out of the man and call him out of the cave. They were standing there when he multiplied five loaves and two fish and fed 20,000 people with a greasy little sack lunch of a little boy. They were standing there when he walked by and tapped the coffin of the widow of Nain's son and the boy got up out of the coffin. They were standing there when the voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. If anybody was an eyewitness of Jesus. It was these men. But Jesus is not talking about something that the disciples saw on earth. He's talking about an event that's about to happen in heaven that the disciples will not be able to see. He's telling them, you need a witness on the inside of you that's going to see me do something in heaven and then come to the earth and testify about it. Now, now we're about to crack open a theological concept here. And Jesus is the one cracking it open. He's revealing to the disciples that there was more to his work on the cross than they had seen or understood. Now, to grasp this in your mind, that's what I really want today. I don't want you to get excited or inspired. I want you to grasp. To grasp this, you have to understand the duality of the nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had a dual nature. He was at the same time both fully man and fully God. And he had responsibilities and work to do inside both of the natures. As fully man, he became my sin offering or the offering that was made to God for my sins. As, as a man, he had blood that could be shed. He had a central nervous system that could feel pain and could suffer. As a man, he had a will that he had to lay down in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, thine be done. As a man, he had emotions and was capable of great emotional suffering and agony. And all of that that he went through on the cross and in all of those areas where he suffered, he was suffering for me and he had to be a man to suffer. But then as fully God, he had capabilities that no other man could have because after his death on the cross, the work of salvation wasn't finished yet. Okay. When he said it is finished, he was talking about the work for salvation that he had as a man. But salvation still was not complete. He's informing his disciples that he's got to go do something in heaven to seal the deal. And that's why I read you that verse in Hebrews, which says our great high priest, Jesus Christ, ascended. He went up into the heavens and offered his own blood on the mercy seat. Now, see, this is where I lose a lot of people when I teach this. Because you live on the earth, you may have a hard time realizing that heaven is a real place. A lot of people think heaven is a spiritual reality, you know, and you kind of float through as ghosts and it's just tranquil and all that. Not so. Heaven's actually more real, more substantive 
than the earth that we live on. The earth that we live on came out of heaven. Heaven's a real place. And in that real place, in that city somewhere, there's a courtroom where God the judge decides and releases judgment, where he makes uh, decrees and things are called into being. And in that courtroom, there was a clean mercy seat that no blood had ever been offered on because no blood was ever pure enough to be offered and no man could ascend into heaven before Jesus to offer it. But the writer of Hebrews tells us the amazing thing about Jesus Christ is he was both our offering for sin the sin offering, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And yet at the same time, he is our great high priest. So he is both the offerer, the priest, and the offering, the sacrifice. He's saying that Jesus took his own blood that he shed on Calvary's cross and he ascended into heaven and walked into the courtroom where God the judge decides all things. And then Jesus poured his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven, eternally securing the salvation for anyone that would ever believe in him. Whether it was 10 days from then or a thousand days or 2000 days, he was saying, Father, if they ever believe in this blood, may the sacrifice that caused this blood to pour out be applied to their heart by faith and may every one of their sins be forgiven. And when God the Father, the judge, looked at his own son pouring the blood of his sacrifice on the mercy seat, God said, I'll have mercy on whoever I'll have mercy. I'll give grace to whoever I want to give grace to. In other words, I don't care how many of my laws they've broken. I don't care what they've done. I don't care where they've been. I don't care what they did or who they did it with. Because of their faith in the blood of your sacrifice, I'm going to release mercy from the mercy seat. I'm going to release forgiveness from the mercy seat. I'm going to release kindness and grace from the mercy seat because they believed in this blood that was shed. Now, Revelations talks about that this was the most holy moment that eternity has ever seen. This courtroom is forbidden to the angels. They can't walk in it. This courtroom is forbidden to other souls who have gone to heaven and received a new body. This courtroom is forbidden. There was only three there that day. God the Father sitting on the throne with the judgment gavel in his hand. God the Son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, standing over at the mercy seat, pouring his own blood that he shed on earth. He was pouring it in heaven. Salvation wasn't sealed on earth. It was sealed in heaven. It wasn't sealed till the blood hit the mercy seat in God's courtroom. Okay. And you only got three in there. You got God the Father. You got God the Son at the mercy seat pouring the blood out. But then you got God the Holy Spirit watching it, witnessing it there in the room at the most powerful moment eternity has ever seen where God, the father got tears in his eyes, where God, the father, the creator started shaking as he began to consider all that his son had to suffer where God, the father made a proclamation. Anybody anywhere that ever has faith in this blood and receives your sacrifice, I'll save them. I don't care how dark and filthy and nasty their sin is. I'll God, God the Father saying it with a shaking voice and, and with emotion pouring out of them. I'll save them. I don't care if they've been a prostitute for 30 years. I'll save them. I don't care if they're a drug addict. I don't care if they're an abuser or a murderer. I don't care what they've done. If they have real faith in this blood you're pouring, I'll release mercy. I'll release mercy what they don't deserve. I'll release mercy 
from the mercy seat. It's the most emotional your God has ever been. It's the most precious, sacred, holy, marvelous moment heaven has ever encountered. And the Holy Spirit was watching it. Witnessing it. So now you see why Jesus told the disciples, you need a witness. In order to be real witnesses of me, in order to preach the real gospel, you can't just go off what you saw me do on earth. Because oh, that was just half the work. You need a witness on the inside of you that saw what I did in heaven's courtroom. You need a witness that was in the room when I poured the blood on the mercy seat. You need a witness that can verify the authenticity of the favor you now have with God because you have believed in me. You need to be filled with the Holy Ghost because... He is a and you thought the biggest thing about him was he made people act weird and talk in tongues. You thought the greatest thing about him was because he gave some prophet a two dollar prophecy. about an uncle that lives in Ohio and your mind's blown? No. No. His, <laughs> his value. His worth. I mean, ignore the fact for a moment that he is the spirit of the living God. But just take that off the table for a minute. Okay. Ignore the fact for a minute that he is a comforter when you cannot receive comfort in your natural soul. When nothing in your circumstances or your mind can comfort you, you can receive comfort from who Jesus called the comforter. But, 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 but more than any of that, all of that secondary to the fact that, that he, he, was, he was in the room. When, when God was saving the eternal soul of you and everyone else that would ever come into time that God foreknew and foresaw that would ever accept and receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit was in the room when the deal was sealed. John 15, 26, John 15, 26. But when look at what Jesus calls him, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you, settle down when, oh, hallelujah. but when the helper comes, ah, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will what testify. he'll testify of me yeah. and, and the, the old church has just murdered our understanding of that we used to let people have the microphone get up have testimony service they'd start going off in tongues and 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 that's not what he's talking about think of testify like testimony in a court like a witness standing up to testify. What did Jesus say the Holy Spirit's going to do? What's the main thing? What's the biggest attribute? He will testify of me. What about me? That he saw me. He witnessed me. 
empty my own blood for your redemption out on the mercy seat. He heard God the Father throw out the case of sin against every single one of the people of the earth that would ever have faith in the cross and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord by faith. He, he saw! Saw it. Saw it. He saw it. First John 5, 9 and 10. If, if we receive the witness of men, like if your boss will fire you because another employee saw you doing something and they witnessed it and they go to your boss and they tell them and that, that can get you in trouble, you know? If, if a judge can put you in jail and take away 30 years of your life because they received a witness in court that testified against you, if we receive the witness of men, well, then certainly the witness of God is. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of. His, who, is the, who is the witness of God? No, no, no. Who is the witness of God? The Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was the only one that witnessed what was happening between God the Father, the judge, and God the Son, the sacrifice. And the witness of God is greater. Did you, did you know? Well, let's talk about praying in the Spirit for a minute. Because... He testifies. That's what he does. He, he testifies. Let's, let's talk about praying in the spirit for a minute. Praying in tongues, praying in a heavenly language that the Holy Spirit gives you utterance to pray. When you pray in tongues, I'm going to use Trace, Pastor Tracy as an example. When you pray in tongues, you're praying a lot of things. Paul said you speak mysteries. They are mysteries to you. They are knowledgeable to God. But when you pray in tongues, your spirit when we know not how to pray as we ought, the Spirit itself makes intercession for us. That's why it's so important to pray in the Holy Spirit, to give him your voice and your mouth. The Holy Spirit doesn't take your mouth over and make you speak. You do the speaking. He does the utterance. He does the inspiration of it. Did you know when you're praying in the Spirit, you may, you don't know, you may be praying about a family member that's in trouble that you don't know about. You may be praying about an opportunity that's coming up that you don't know about. Maybe praying just personally, clearing out some stuff in your own self. But do you know the main thing that you pray every time you pray in tongues? Do you want to know the main thing that's being said? The Holy Ghost is speaking out and testifying from within you. The blood hit the mercy seat for you. The Holy Spirit saying, out of Tracy, the Holy Spirit saying, the blood hit the mercy seat for you, Tracy. The blood hit the mercy seat for you. All of your sins are washed away. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The Holy Spirit's just testifying. You're saved. You're saved. You're saved. Over and over again. You're saved. You're saved. You're saved. You're saved. I saw it happen. You're saved. You're saved. You're saved. When I pray in tongues, the Holy Spirit is saying, Jason, you're saved. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. You are saved. I saw the blood hit the mercy. When you pray in tongues, the Holy Spirit coming up out of you. You may, you may be praying about a lot of things, you know, but the main thing, that's what we just read in, in 1 John. The main thing he's doing is testifying of Jesus and his work for you which was not just about healing you, blessing you, promoting you, favoring you. No, no, no. The main thing was saving. Saving you. And you're hung up on, you know, just thinking it's about spiritual gifts. No. All God did in the scripture he was setting up to one pivotal point, one major moment. And that was the moment when God the Father knew he would sacrifice his own son, that he would pour out on his own son the judgment you and I deserved. 
that he would give his only son. That's, that's what was on his mind. I mean, Genesis, it was on his mind. Revelation, it's on Revelation near the end. It's, it's still on the mind of God. Worthy is the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. So the Holy Spirit taking his cue from the most important thing that ever happened to the father and the most important thing that ever happened to the son. The Holy Spirit that witnessed that moment comes to live inside of you and bear witness and testify and keep testifying about what he saw happen in the courtroom on your path. So Pentecost isn't about an organ. It's not about a holy role. It's not about a dance, a shout, or a buck. It's about what happened during that 50 days. What happened after the blood was shed at Passover. What happened in heaven's courtroom when Jesus, our great high priest, passed into the heavens, walked in there and shed his blood and then sent us to dwell in us the only other person that saw it. He's a witness. Okay. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And some of you that have gotten, you know, real leaky lately. You need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about salvation. That was handled at Passover. I'm talking about what happened at Pentecost. God, I'm okay. God filling you with the spirit that saw it and then testifying out of you with that with that spirit. Okay. So I want you to understand something real quick. Uh, I doubt that you're UPC in this church, but I mean, if you are UPC, you're going to hate me for this one. Uh, but study your Bible some more and you'll see it. Salvation and being filled with the Holy spirit are two separate events. Okay. You can be saved by experiencing the work of Passover. And that's as simple as hearing the message concerning Jesus, according to Romans 10, believing it in your heart and confessing it with your mouth in faith. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Paul said, shall be saved. But that is a different separate experience from you being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me prove that to you. Acts chapter 19, verse 2. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 19, verse 2. The apostle Paul is walking and uh, he saw some disciples. Go back to verse 1. I'm sorry. Let me just set it all the way up. Acts 19, 1. If you can, real quick. If you can't, I'll work with this. I'll work with this. Paul is, is traveling. He, well, there we go. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, watch this, and finding certain disciples. Didn't say finding certain heathens. Didn't say finding certain unsaved people. He found certain disciples. What's a disciple mean? It means to walk in discipline with what you believe. These people weren't playing. They were disciplined people. Okay. He found disciples. Next verse. And he said to them, have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believe? He goes another step, not only calling them disciples, he goes another step and acknowledges that they are believers. Okay. He said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed or when you believed? That indicates that it was a past tense experience. 
They said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Next verse. Next verse. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after. That's what got these people saved. Okay. That is Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus. Next verse. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. Do you see the distinction between the two experiences? Salvation always comes first. Passover always comes first. Passover always comes before Pentecost. You can have Passover and have not yet received Pentecost. Or you can have salvation and have not yet received the infilling of the Holy Spirit. On the flip side, you cannot receive the Holy Spirit unless you have at first experienced the blood of Jesus Christ for salvation. Okay? You see that? It's a subsequent experience. Now, I'm out of time. The key to being filled with the Holy Spirit is hunger. It's why I'm preaching or teaching it today, because I'm hoping I'll spur someone to hunger for it. You have to want it. It doesn't just jump on you, you know. Uh, my uncle used to say, I, I don't, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to catch the Holy Ghost. You know, Holy Ghost makes people act crazy and all. He, so he would say, I don't want to go to church because I don't want to catch the Holy Ghost. Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that. You have to want it. You have to desire it. If you went home and, uh, and found out a dear loved one was in a horrific car accident. Most of you, if you have any faith at all, would start praying and pulling on God for healing. Or if your boss fired you, knowing you got that mortgage and, and those bills coming up, you'd You'd start desperately praying and pulling on God for favor and financial prosperity. Okay. If, you know, if something was, was happening in your mental health or your emotions and you were just up under depression and anxiety and torture and really going through a difficult time, you would, you would pray and ask God for deliverance and pull on that deliverance, you know. Because you desperately needed in those moments either healing or financial breakthrough or deliverance. And what I'm telling you is you have to get that desperate. Oh, hallelujah. Agonizingly desperate to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you have to ask God for it. God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke 11, verse 9 through 13. Hallelujah to God. No, no, I don't know. Hold on. Y'all give me one second. I don't like that. Uh. I don't want to cheapen that by just giving you. Let me go to Luke 11. Uh, okay. Yeah, that'll work. Go back to nine. Jesus, verses one through eight, Jesus is teaching them the model prayer. The disciples come to him. They said, John taught his disciples how to pray. We want you to teach us how to pray. 
So Jesus goes through the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He teaches them that. And then he gives them an illustration on how to approach God and ask for what they need. Now, I'm telling you right now, if you've been in church any amount of time, you have heard this scripture slightly wretched out of context. Because as I go through the scripture, you're going to remember hearing this, but it being in reference to the things you need or want. Okay. But I want you to watch the context of what the verse says. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Everybody say, what's it? Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Verse 10. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. Next. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Verse 13. If you then being evil are having the propensity or the ability to be evil. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the car, give the house, give the promotion, give the favor, Give whatever you want. No, he wasn't talking about all that stuff. He said, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those? So, so this is not a prayer line type thing. You know, it, it can certainly happen that way. But, but more often than not, I've seen people get filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and call and testify. They got filled with the Holy Spirit in their house or in their car or just in a service while the preaching was happening. Just this, but because they've been hungering, they've been thirsting, they've been asking, they've been seeking, they've been knocking, they've been going to God saying, God, please don't let me walk another day with you without you filling me with the Holy Spirit. And, and the text there in Luke indicates that God wants to. He wants to. We were at a restaurant the other day, and um, my boy mentioned that he would like to order something, and it was the most expensive thing on the menu. And I did not give it to him. Not because it wasn't expensive or it was expensive. I, in other words, I didn't hold it back from him because it would have cost me a lot of money. I held it back from him because I knew he wasn't hungry. See, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. We, we have rules in our house about snacks and how much you can eat, especially if we're about to go out. And, and, he, and, he, and he's, he's clever. My little boy, he's clever. And I saw him slip into the, the snack pantry and the refrigerator. And I saw him eat three or four huge plates of snacks. And I knew if I order him that plate, and it's a big plate. It was an adult plate. He tried to order something off the adult menu. But I knew if I give you that, you're going to waste it. You ain't going to appreciate it. You ain't going to value it. You certainly ain't going to eat it because daddy knows you ain't hungry. Stand to your feet and give the Lord a praise.
this today because I'm desperate for you to be able to feel the way I feel right now. When he starts to move, when he steps into a room, when he begins to operate, it's like nothing in the world. And it's coming from the inside. It's powerful. Like a raging river of pure life. Pure love. And he does a lot of things to me says a lot of things to me but the thing he says the most he bears witness as John said in 3rd John he bears witness with my spirit that I belong to God when I've tried to go my own way he argued with me louder than my mind louder than my own conscience. He argued with me and reminded me, you belong to God. When I treat somebody wrongly, he bothers me. When I try to lay down and go to sleep, he won't let me find rest until I call and apologize and repent. He, he, he reminds me, I, I saw the blood hit the mercy seat for you. God spent too much for you to live that recklessly. God spent too much for you to be that wild. God spent too much. I, I, I don't know how people live in this world without being filled with him. I don't know. I don't know. I've testified to you many times about what we went through with my son Levi's brain and his brain damage and brain surgery and all that. But I might not have told you one day we went in and they were all concerned. And the concern was different than his brain. This time there was a concern with his heart. They said he had a big hole in his heart. Like we hadn't been through enough with the brain. Oh, oh, oh is it just the brain and the heart? Oh, and, uh, and I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. See, I was already pushed to that, like, absolute razor thin edge. Yeah. Yeah. No? I'm $3 million in, in debt. I got all kinds of stuff going on. They're telling me he's going to be a vegetable. And now they come in and say, hole in the heart. And when the doctor said that, I, I heard this uh, inside of me so loudly. The Holy Spirit started laughing. God, I can't describe it to you. My words are failing. My, my vernacular, I just don't have the ability. I, when the words came out of the doctor's mouth, I heard laughter. Like the Holy Spirit was mocking the report. And they called us six hours later and said we made a mistake. But, 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 for, but, 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 for, look, 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 I know, I know, I appreciate it, but for, for that six hours, it's like, God didn't want me to have to go through anything else. So, so he gave me that on the inside. 
And, and if you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll find that when you're going through some of the most intense trials, there's a strength that comes not from your own mind, not from anything you read or from anything anybody said. There's a strength that comes from the witness that is living on the inside of you. It's inside of you, but it's outside of your control. It's outside of your motivation. It's another force, the God force, the God life, living, living, living on the inside of you. I want you and I wish, oh God, I wish I did a better job. I wish I was more gifted. But I want you with all of my heart to come away from this service today just muttering to yourself, God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't even... I'm not even concerned with what it looks like or what it sounds like or how it happens or just but but God just please fill me with the Holy Spirit with your heads bowed I want to pray for a few people I want the elders of the church to come in accordance with the book of James we're going to lay hands on you if you would like to receive the Holy Spirit we're going to pray with you and ask God to give it to you some of you may receive it in this moment. Some of you may receive it next Thursday afternoon at 4.30. It's up to God to give it, but it's up to us to ask for it. You're in this room and you're saved. You know that you're saved, but, but you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Come now. Come now, please. Come now quickly. Amen. Amen. Elders, all we're praying is we're praying, God, fill them with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're praying. There's nothing worth more than can ever come close. No thing can compare your heart. 